0: very much is not going to sound very pastorly, much less very Christ like. But here at Mosaic Church, one of our core values is that we practice authentic relationships, whereby we esteem this value that no one is perfect, including pastors, and that also means we don't pretend to be perfect either. And so, as someone who finds himself in a position of leadership here at Mosaic Church, I thought it would be good to model that belief by putting on full display some of my failures and shortcomings as a human being. Namely, I need to confess this morning that I hate someone. Now, I realize that hate is a really intense word. And I also know that as a follower of Jesus, we're commanded to love and not to hate. However, As I was thinking about it this week, there's really no other emotion to describe how I feel towards this particular person. They, after all, throughout the years have caused myself, my family, and my friends a tremendous amount of heartache and grief. So you may be wondering, who in the world has acted so terribly as to garner the hate of a pastor? I'm referring to none other than Tom Brady. <laughs> it's true, I hate Tom Brady. Now, now, if I can be honest, I've never personally met Tom, and I'm sure in real life he's a completely decent human being. But nonetheless, I can't stand the man. I can't stand him because not only for the last 20 years has he been almost Solely responsible for some of my worst sporting experiences as a Denver Broncos fan, but I also can't stand what his life represents. You see, Tom Brady is the quintessential picture of success in America. I mean, stop and just think about it for a moment. He is the perfect trifecta with his good looks and his like chiseled chin and stupid perfect hair. He has more money than God, in fact, as I was researching this week, I saw that he just recently rented a tiny 22,000 square foot mansion in Tampa Bay that one newspaper said was the most impressive home to ever hit the market in Tampa Bay. And if that wasn't enough, he's insanely athletically gifted. The dude has it all, and quite frankly, I hate him for it. My ire um, towards Tom Brady, and, and don't get it twisted, I'm, I'm, my ire, my, my feeling toward him, isn't because he's achieved enormous success by our American standards, but rather it's because his success reminds me how miserably I failed to achieve that success when my life is judged by those same standards. I'm okay in saying that I clearly don't have the good looks that Tom has. But thankfully for me, I married somebody who is clinically blind without the use of <laughs> contacts and glasses. So I have that going for me. I don't have a lot of money. You don't get into ministry to make money, obviously. And despite what, may be my, what I may portray up here, I'm not all that athletically gifted. Judging by our American standards of success, I've not only missed the bar, I've fallen woefully beneath it. And as my wife so well said yesterday, I double-doinked it off the uprights when it comes to life. And every Sunday afternoon, Tom Brady is there to remind me of that fact. But if I'm honest, it's really not just Tom Brady who reinforces this American ideal of success. It's literally everywhere I look these days. In fact, The Webster's Dictionary actually goes as far as to define success as the fact of getting or achieving, get this, wealth, respect, or fame. This ideal is flaunted in front of me every time I scroll through my uh, social media feed by the influencers and athletes that I follow. And every time I turn on my TV, there is a commercial telling me what new and amazing product that I need to own in order to be considered successful. In almost every facet of my life, the American ideal for success is measured by the number of zeros that I have in my bank account, the square footage of my home, the number of followers that I have on social media by the kind of car that I drive, or by the title that follows after my name at work. I live in a culture where my soul is relentlessly bombarded by the belief that success is achieved through possessions, prestige, and power. And if I'm honest this morning, church, sometimes I believe it. Sometimes it's easy for me to get caught up in this idea of defining my success by the American ideal. I start to think, if I could just own that house, if I could just drive that car, if I could just be in that income bracket, or especially insidious, if I could just pastor a church that size, hello, Then, then, if I could just have those things, I would be successful. And so what happens? I end up spending my precious time, my precious resources, my precious energy chasing after this American ideal, and the sad part is, more often than not, I do that at the expense of people that I love the most. Now, as I look around this room, I know that I'm not alone. I know that because every one of us at one time or another, or to varying degrees, struggle under this burden of American success, because every one of us here desires to live a life that matters. It's a uniquely human trait. For example, my dog Chewy, who is 13 years old, there he is, he's 13 years old. And God willing, he has one or two more years left on this planet before he takes up permanent residency at Peaceful Pets Next Door with our kids (laughs) ministry in a few weeks. I love that dog with all my heart. But the truth is, the only thing, and I am being generous, the only thing that Chewy has ever done with his life is eat, sleep, and poop. And yet... I have never heard Chewy laying awake at night questioning the merits of success for his life. He's never asked me, golly, have I lived a life that truly matters? Because he's a dog. He doesn't have to deal with the burden of American success, but you and I do. And depending on our age and experience in life, we all cling to different indicators that perhaps we believe or have been told will herald an announcement to the world that we have finally arrived, that we are successful. If you're in high school today, maybe that looks like an acceptance letter from the college of your dreams that will finally say, I made it. If you're single, which I found myself there for a lot of years, maybe it's getting a ring on that finger, that will announce to the world, I finally made it. If you're married, maybe it's moving into a new neighborhood, a nice neighborhood that will tell your family and friends that you finally have made it. If you're a parent, maybe it's having successful children that will tell the world that you finally have made it. Or maybe if you're an empty nester, Maybe it's the ability to travel that, as you cruise down the road, will tell others that you finally made it in your brand new Winnebago. We all have very different cultural and self-imposed indicators that we use to define success in our lives. The problem with that is, is that there's always another Tom Brady. There's always going to be someone who has more possessions more prestige and more power than we do. And so rather than just being and accepting when we level up in life, we chase that next success believing it's going to bring us happiness. We look to get the next house, the next paycheck, the next possession, all the while believing that whatever that next is in our mind, is in our mind it will finally satisfy that innate desire to have a life that truly matters. But it never does, does it? Never does. And the crazy part is, is that round and round we go on this same circle, chasing after things that promise to fulfill that insatiable hole in our hearts, but ultimately never can. So what does success look like in our lives? What does it look like as followers of Jesus to live a life that truly matters? The cool part is, thankfully, I think God knew this was going to be a problem that we would wrestle with, or a question that we would have in our minds, because Jesus addresses this very issue one afternoon on a mountainside while delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And so together, let's turn, if you've got your Bibles with you or if you're following along on your Bible app, Um, certainly if you're following us online today, you can turn with us as well. Uh, But let's turn to chapter 5 in the book of Matthew and explore together what Jesus has to say about this very important issue of success. Before we do so, though, I want you to pause for just a moment and imagine with me, because all of us have received an invitation at one point or another in life. In fact, each of you received an invitation by Joe this morning to attend Movies at Mosaic on November 7th. I hope to see you all there. We've all received an invitation, but for just a moment, I want you to stop and imagine with me that you're receiving an invitation that is unlike any invitation that you've ever received. Just picture it. You get a notification on your phone that there is a delivery at your door. And so you buzz this person in. And you wait a few seconds for them to arrive at their door. And when you open their door, standing in front of you is the most important person that you've ever met. And no, it's not Tom Brady. And they hand you an invitation. And this invitation is printed on some of the most expensive paper that you've ever seen. And as you open this invitation and you read through it, you cannot believe what you're seeing printed on this piece of paper. In fact, you have to read it several times just to comprehend what is being said on this invitation. Because if you choose to RSVP yes to this invitation, it will change everything about your life. It changes everything. And the good news this morning is that we don't have to imagine that invitation. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus made just such an invitation. We learn in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus walked up to a mountainside. He sat down and opened his mouth and spoke. And in doing so, he issues an invitation to a way of life that will change everything if we choose to accept it. So what's this invitation? What's this invitation that Jesus is calling us to? It's an invitation to redefine what, we, what it means to be successful in this life. It's an invitation to live a life that truly matters. Jesus, the God-man, is inviting us to participate in the conditions that create success and incredible happiness in our lives. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes a way of being in the world to live a life that matters, but not only for us as individuals, but for others as well. He paints a picture and then invites us to join it. And when Jesus begins the most famous sermon ever given, he does so by saying, blessed are. And this word blessed is an incredibly hard word to translate, and it's a difficult word to understand, but we're going to try to do so this morning. Because it may cause, when we hear this word blessed, to begin to wonder if Jesus is giving a new set of rules for life. Basically, that if you live this way, then you will experience these results. Or we may wonder if Jesus is promising God's blessing if we do certain things in our lives. But to read the Beatitudes Church as a list of rules to achieve success in life is to miss the point of what Jesus is saying in this sermon. Jesus is describing for us the best and most successful and joyous way about being in the world. It's like He's got a set of keys to a brand new car or a brand new house, and he's dangling them in front of us. And he's saying, this can be yours. And this word blessed is meant to incite within us a desire to have what Jesus is offering. It's going to hurt me to say this this morning, but it's akin to looking at the Green Bay Packers this season and saying, wow, that's a really good, good football team. And they are a picture of what a good football team looks like that's functioning and hitting on all cylinders. Now, I wouldn't say that, but some of you Wisconsinites might. And Australians have this term, good on you, mate. Has anybody ever heard that before? Good on you, mate. It basically means a job well done. Or, for those of us in this room who maybe have Welsh roots, there's a saying, white is their world, which means that everything is good for that particular person. And that is what Jesus is saying when he uses the word blessed in the Beatitudes. He isn't so much promising God's blessing for if we follow certain conditions. Rather, he's describing, again, a way to live in the world That is different from what we've experienced in the past. When he says blessed, he's saying good on you to the people that he's talking to. They figured out a way of life. And because they are living this way, they've discovered the conditions that will allow them to succeed and have happiness in God's kingdom. They're living a life worth living. Now, church, this morning, what I'm about to say, don't let this pass you by. God is very concerned about your happiness. Let me say that again. God is very concerned about your happiness. Now, before you can write an email to Jason claiming that I'm preaching a prosperity gospel from the front, let me stop you and say I'm not a name it and claim it preacher. What I mean is when I say God is concerned about your happiness, I mean to say that God is concerned about the fact that you are able to succeed in his kingdom here on earth. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the conditions that will lead to that success and to the success of others. So, what is success then in God's kingdom? As we've already said, I think if any of us were to try and fill in the blank there, we would probably say things like, I want lots of money, no debt. I would love to have a ton of free time, meaningful relationships, great vacations, or a nice car. If that is success in God's kingdom, sign me up. But John Calvin, the great preacher and pastor, once observed that most people hold to the false belief that a happy person is one who is free from annoyance, attains all that he wishes, and leads a joyful and easy life. Sorry, John, I hate to disagree, but sign me up for that. But what's confusing about the Sermon on the Mount is this. Jesus doesn't describe that kind of life that most of us would put forth as success. Nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus use or reference the American ideal for success to describe what success looks like in the kingdom of God. Instead... He turns to a group of people and says, hey, good on you. They're successful. They figured life out. And then he turns around and immediately describes nine qualities that most every one of us in this room would say that's negative. That doesn't sound like success to me, Jesus. So let's check out Jesus' shocking words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 10. And he says this. for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Stop. I want you to pay attention and notice very clearly what Jesus doesn't say in that list. At no point in that list does Jesus say, blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are those who have a good reputation. Or blessed are those who are well-connected with other people in high places. Success according to Jesus are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for justice, those who are meek, those who are merciful, those who are pure in spirit, and those who are peacemakers and those who are persecuted. But I think every one of us this morning would probably say those are things most of us want to avoid in life. In the whole list, really the only quality that is actually not entirely negative is being pure in heart. And yet Jesus describes these set of qualities that are the very opposite of what we in America define as success. Take, for example, pure in spirit, poor in spirit. And that may sound like a virtuous thing to our modern ears. But you have to remember that when Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mount, He's speaking these words into an honor and shame culture where being poor in spirit was not something that was prized or used to get ahead in life. And yet, and yet... Jesus says that it's the poor in spirit who have discovered something about life that allows them to experience success and happiness in God's kingdom. The poor in spirit have discovered a life that truly matters. And so why are these negative qualities so positive in God's upside-down kingdom? Well, Jesus explains, and we're going to go through the last four because Jason did an awesome job last week unpacking the first four. So we'll start with, blessed are the merciful. The merciful are unusual people, especially in today's day and age. Merciful people don't treat their enemies like enemies. Merciful people see someone in need and they inconvenience themselves to go and help that person. They give freely of their time and of their energy and of their effort to help others in need. These people know the mercy of God. They've experienced the mercy of God. And so because of that, they are able to be merciful to others. And then there are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And we said this one seems like a positive one. But the pure in heart know the tension of externalism. In other words, they know what it means that living for the social honor that comes with having a good reputation or being successful in life. We like it when people like us, right? I like it when people like me. And the pure in heart may also enjoy this as well, but they don't live for it. They live for God. They live their life by the hymn that reads, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. The pure in spirit live, the pure in heart live for God. And they have assurance that they will see him someday. Blessed are the peacemakers. And I can think of no more appropriate blessing than the peacemakers given the time that we're living in. We are living in a day and age where it, that is marked by rivalry and conflict. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers because peacemakers are rare. Peacemakers don't inflame the latest Facebook thread that's blowing up. They don't stir things up. Their presence brings about an understanding of peace. And the cool thing about peacemakers, if you go and look at the word in the scripture, it actually doesn't mean somebody who lives by peace. It means that it is someone who brings about peace by overcoming evil with good. It's not a passive Thing. It's an action word about peacemakers, and peacemakers are blessed because they, God says when the final judgment comes, peacemakers will be called the sons of God and the children of God. And then finally, we have the persecuted. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time understanding how success and persecution go together. What good could come from being verbally harassed or perhaps even much worse? But here's the truth. When you're persecuted for Christ, it means that you've discovered something so precious and so valuable that it's more important than your own comfort and ease. I found something so beautiful that I am willing to sacrifice my own comfort and ease in order to retain that, and that is Jesus And when we suffer for Christ, we don't suffer in vain. So this, according to Jesus, is what true success looks like in God's kingdom. And I know, believe me, I know, we may be tempted to believe, based on living in America in 2020, that success has everything to do with getting what we want and when we want it, living a life with no annoyances or no obstacles, But Jesus says that success in God's kingdom may look difficult, but that there is something inside these blessed people that's able to handle hard times because their success and their happiness is not built on their circumstances. Their success and their happiness is not built on external circumstances. Instead, their happiness and their success is built on something so secure that even when life falters around them, they're fine. And Jesus points to him and says, that's a picture of what success looks like in my kingdom. So why does Jesus paint this picture? Because it's an invitation. Church, is perhaps the greatest invitation that we will ever receive in our lives. And I love, I love how Eugene Peterson says it. Um, he's an author and theologian, and he sums up this idea of invitation in scripture. He says this, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us to live up to this, nor does it set up a system of doctrine and say, think like this and live, uh, and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in telling invites, live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human in a God-made, God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. And I would add to Eugene Peterson's statement that this is what it looks like to mature as a disciple of Christ. Church, the Beatitudes aren't a prescriptions. They're not postulations. It's an invitation Jesus isn't primarily instructing us on how to pursue certain values, though certainly as his disciples, we should strive to grow in meekness and in mercy and in purity of heart. But the truth is that with the Beatitudes, Jesus is announcing where his kingdom can be found and who will inherit it in its fullness. So that as we get up and leave this place this morning, as we go out to our daily lives, as we go into our work this week, we are able to recognize God's kingdom at work and able to join in with what he's doing. That's the invitation of the Beatitudes Church. That we can see where God's kingdom is moving and the invitation to join in and follow after him. The Beatitudes demonstrate what it looks like to counter... The empty pursuits of our culture that it, va- that it values so dearly. They're not trivial promises of ease and security. Instead, they are statements that assure us of the full realization of all our human desires. Remember back at the beginning of the sermon, I said we have this insatiable hole in our hearts and we just stuff things in it? The Beatitudes are statements that assure us of the full realization of all those things that we so deeply desire in our hearts, to know God and be known by him, to be his children, to know his comfort and satisfaction, and praise God ultimately to be able to dwell with him forever through Jesus Christ. They are a verbal picture of a life worth living in God's kingdom. The Beatitudes are Jesus' invitation to redefine our Americanized view of success by allowing our hearts to be aligned with and transformed by the principles of God's upside-down kingdom. It's an invitation. And my question to you this morning, church, is, are you willing to accept that invitation? Are you willing to say yes to one of the greatest invitations that you've ever received? But how do we accept Jesus' invitation? How do we begin to allow our hearts to be aligned with and transformed by the principles of God's upside-down kingdom? Especially when we said, as we live in a world that is constantly tugging at our hearts and pulling us in a direction to define our success by things we've achieved in life, the answer lies in what you choose to feed your heart and soul. Now, some of you may know that Pastor Jason and I have been in a competition for the last few weeks. We're trying to lose some weight before the beginning of the year and before the new year. And in other words, we want to lose our COVID-19, not the virus, the weight. And we've established that every Monday morning for the next 10 weeks, we are going to weigh in. And then whoever loses the most percentage body weight is the winner for that week. Now, I have to tell you that for the first two weeks, Jason has beat me. And that is something, a fact, that he reminds me of every stinking day. And it drives me bonkers. I get so angry about it. But here's the truth, church. I don't have to and shouldn't be angry at Jason. I shouldn't be angry at my scale, though I have been these last few weeks. (laughs) I've even questioned whether or not the scale's working. I really have nobody to be angry at but myself. Because the truth is, for the last two weeks, I'm still eating junk. I sit down at night and I'm putting pretzels and chips and all those kind of things late at night into my body. And so I shouldn't be surprised then, the scale reflecting what it is I put into my mouth. And the same is true when it comes to our hearts and the principles of God's upside-down kingdom in the Beatitudes. I can't expect to start thinking and acting differently about success in God's kingdom when the only thing I'm feeding myself is this American ideal of success. I have to start feeding my heart and soul things that align with God's view of what success looks like in His kingdom. And one of the ways that we can do that practically this morning, church, one of the ways that we can accept that invitation of God is by beginning to pray through the Beatitudes. Begin to pray through the Beatitudes and let those wash through our minds. It may be that you choose to pray one Beatitude a day, or it may be that you choose to pray the entire list in a day. But however you do that, it begins to redefine in our minds what success looks like according to God's kingdom. For example, if we chose to pray blessed are the poor in spirit from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it may sound something like this. Heavenly Father, I want the humility not to be impressed with myself and my accomplishments. Increase in me. More of you, God, and none of me. I am overwhelmed with my sense of spiritual need. I recognize the true spiritual condition of my pride and self-sufficiency, and I am broken and over, over it and need to cast myself upon you to receive your mercy. That may be one way that you choose to pray that, and that could be for any one of the Beatitudes. But as we pray through the Beatitudes again, we begin to counter the effects of that American ideal of how, and how it works against our souls on a daily basis. We saturate our hearts with what it looks like to live a life worth living in God's kingdom. Again, my question is, will you accept Jesus's invitation? Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.